Hello and welcome to Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Hannah and you can email me with your thoughts or questions on live at cicerone.co.uk. In this episode, I'm talking to Paddy Dillon, one of Cicerone's most prolific and experienced authors. As you'll be able to tell, Paddy is an extraordinarily knowledgeable and chatty author, and this episode is the highlights of our live event with Paddy, where we discussed his favourite winter sunshine destinations. If you'd like to watch the full episode, you can catch up on Facebook or YouTube or on our website, cicerone.co.uk. Also on our website are full details of all the books we mentioned tonight, as well as articles written by Paddy and other experts, all about walking, trekking and cycling around the world. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. We're welcoming Paddy Dillon to talk to us shortly about winter sunshine destinations, which is a a bit of a funny concept. But we were just thinking that in much of the the northern Europe and the US, clocks have gone back. It's feeling a bit dark, a bit miserable. And we wanted to daydream about some sunny walking. So Paddy's going to talk to us about some of his favourite places to go walking in winter. He's not going to talk about places that he doesn't know about. He's sensible like that. So we're not going to list every single possible place that you can go walking in in winter. But Paddy's just going to talk about some of his favourite spots, um, places that he's really enjoyed in, in the wintertime. Um, welcome, Paddy. Hello, Hannah. Hello, everybody. Hi, Paddy. So, yeah, winter sunshine. What sort of things do you look for in a a winter sunshine holiday? Well, I think the first thing you've got to try and figure out is which places have dependable weather. You can't get guaranteed summer weather, sunny weather. It just doesn't happen like that. Nobody can guarantee anything with the weather these days. But if you look for dependable weather, there are places and there are places that a lot of people know about where the weather is fairly dependable not only year round, but including the winter as well. And, you know, maybe one of the the premier sunshine destinations would be the Canary Islands. People tend to go there in the summer, I know, but the winter time is fairly busy. People have cottoned on to the fact that, you know, the weather is pretty good there. They get plenty of sunshine hours. And even when there's rain or a big storm rolls in, it's fairly limited extent. You know, the sunny days will return fairly quickly. With that particular island group, you've got any type of walking from sea level to the most tremendously high mountains. And it's all approachable pretty much for the whole winter. Um, There are provisos there. I mean, El Tede on Tenerife is so magnificently high, you know, 3,700 metres, that any snow at all in winter is going to hit those slopes. But the rest of the island will never get snow on it. No matter how hard it snows on the top, it will never go down to sea level, not remotely anywhere near it. And then for the rest of the Canary Islands, snow on two of those islands is actually quite a rare event. And on the rest, it's pretty much unknown. So that particular destination will be well known for having what I would call dependable winter sunshine conditions. 
The same would go for the Azores to a certain extent, although it is rather damper there. Madeira also, um, and it goes on like that, you know, I mean, you can name place after place after place. And while most of them are dependable, none of them are absolutely guaranteed to give you winter sunshine. So you always take that little bit, you know, as you find it. You know, if you go there looking for sunshine and it rains when you get there, just hang on. It may clear in a couple of days. If, it, if you went somewhere for two weeks and it just rained solid for two weeks, I think you would count yourself very, very unlucky. It shouldn't happen like that. You know, it should be a, a case of decent sunshine, a bit of rain and then more sunshine. So I'd be looking for places like that, dependable weather, not guaranteed weather. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll start with the um, Canary Islands because you can be adventurous here. There is a long distance trail that goes through all seven of the Canary Islands. It's known as the GR131. It's consistently signposted throughout and some of it is actually marked with markers at every one kilometre along the trail on at least two of the islands. Um, But that's just to give you an idea what the signposting looks like. But let's see how it hops from island to island. So first of all, we go through Lanzarote and you can see the flowers already. There's plenty of greenery. The sky is blue. It's a lovely sunny day. And as you work your way through Lanzarote, you can go right over the highest point with minimal effort. It's one of the easiest islands to walk across. It would take you five days. Coming down through the fields, you're following dirt tracks. None of it is particularly steep or difficult. So if you're going to do a long distance trail, one that has five easy days to set you off is actually ideal. You don't go over the hills, you go between them. And simple ferry connection will get you from Lanzarote to Fuerteventura, where the adventure continues. Now, of course, it's a bigger island. It goes to a higher altitude. The hills tend to be a bit more severe. But by and large, you're following dirt tracks and little paths that have been constructed, taking you through wonderful little villages past fantastic heritage features, such as our little uh, windmill here, and um, over the hills. And this is it in the depths of winter, you know, this sort of warm, sort of mellow landscape. And when the sun, you know, beats down and it's not very windy, it's actually really quite warm. You know, you're almost passing through desert land. Landscape. This is actually uh, known as El Hable, which just translates as the sand. Um, and you, you follow this trail all the way through these stony, sandy hills to the very tip of Fuerteventura. A quick hop will get you across to Gran Canaria, where the adventure continues yet again, straight up into the mountains. The trail is not as yet marked as the GR131, but it's always been assumed that it's going to take this route through the mountains, following ancient routes that were built, you know, four or five hundred years ago to get people from one side of the island to the other. And again, this is coming up to about the height of Ben Nevis, you know, 1,000, say, 200, 400 metres, and it's still wonderfully sunny. When it, the cloud does come, it tends to build up in the afternoon, and then in the morning, it's all gone again. And even on the highest parts of Gran Canaria, I think it only snows on average once every 20 years. So, you know, fairly dependable weather there. And you continue along the trail, it goes through the the forested areas of uh, Tamadaba, down to a ferry port and straight across gets you into Tenerife. 
where you start with a long forested stage with mountains poking out of it. And then you start circling your way around El Tede, this enormous mountain in the middle of the, the archipelago. And you have the option if you want to climb that mountain, but be warned, it can snow in the winter. And the strange thing about when it snows heavily in the winter is you would be surprised how many people in Tenerife are in possession of toboggans, skis and snowboards. You wouldn't imagine they would have those things, but uh, they do. And they know when it snows, they can have fun. Um, but by and large, it's a very dry, barren, rocky landscape. And you're traveling at about 2,000 meters in altitude through Tenerife. And then a long, long descent on a trail that's always obvious and well signposted. And a hop from Tenerife there in the background onto La Gomera. And now you're walking by numbers. We're already at kilometer number three. This is one of the islands that marks the trail with uh, the stout kilometre markers. Uh, going through La Gomera, you're probably going to hit some cloud at some time. The, the island is notable for having a cap of cloud on top. It actually has one of the best cloud forests in the entire world and you don't have a cloud forest without a cloud and apart from that expect it even in the winter to be lovely and sunny and mild hot will get you to the island of La Palma which of course is in the news these days with the volcano that's uh, popped up on this particular range the Cumbre Vieja the trail itself goes up over the top of the Cumbre now the volcano at this point is off to the left and a long way downhill so I'm assuming this trail is still open, but be ready not just for the possibility of, say, rain, but the possibility of volcanic ash pattering down on your head at this particular time. The volcano won't go on forever, but past volcanoes have already covered this landscape in uh, liberal quantities of volcanic ash, as you can already see. But the signposted trail is easy to follow, although the route itself is particularly challenging. It does go to about almost 2,500 metres. You tend to pop out of the top of any clouds that form, right up into the high mountains, where it's almost always clear, and then a big, long descent to end at Tazacorte. Now there's only one island left which is a tiny little island of El Hierro. This is the main ferry port and there's no doubting when you leave that ferry port you're climbing uphill and you stay uphill following an ancient pilgrim trail, the Camino de la Vergen, all the way through El Hierro. These flowers are bursting out of the ground at the beginning of February so this is the sort of conditions you would expect in winter on that trail. Just abundant flowers everywhere. And then as you end up going down towards the end of the GR131, it would take you about 31 to 32 days to get to the end of the trail here, having started in Lanzarote. So that's what it's like doing a month-long, long-distance trail in the depths of winter through all seven of the Canary Islands. Now, you could try the same thing over in the um, Azores. There are nine islands, and if I race through them, you've got um, San Miguel and these enormous lakes that sit in huge volcanic craters. You can walk around that in a day. You can explore other lakes that sit in volcanic craters. You can go and see geothermal bubbling hot water springs cold waterfalls pouring down through dense forests and it's got a wonderful coastline very rugged but equipped with trails that allow you to explore parts of the island if you try and link everything together you could get a, a long distance walk of sorts together but it's ideal just for exploring short easy trails day after day 
and that's the sort of uh, weather conditions you might expect in winter. Now, it does get rain, it does get mist in the winter, but it tends to blow through and then you get the sunny days again afterwards. This is a little island, Santa Maria. And um, again, you know, the, the lengths people have gone to to cultivate the slopes are absolutely incredible. And there is a long distance trail that works its way around this island, taking you from the coast through the Red Desert and all the way back to the coast. And it would take you maybe four days, you know. So that would be an ideal one to fit into a week's journey. You know, you fly out there, do a four-day trek around the island, find one or two other things to do, and then bail out. If you wanted to go hopping from island to island, the next one in line is Tessera. And it's a large island, but it's only equipped with about half a dozen short walks that are signposted. So this is the sort of scenery you might expect if you went from one walk to the other around the island. Again, lovely weather conditions if you pick your day. If it rains, there are plenty of heritage features indoors to explore. And then once it's sunny, make a plan to get out and do one of these walks because the scenery and the colour and the, the greenness of the Azores is, is absolutely absorbing. This is what it looks like from the air. Lots of little fields. This is coming into the island of Graciosa, where you might expect to spend maybe four or five days exploring their trails. Um, they've got one that takes about three days to get round the island. Wonderful flowers in the depths of winter. And because of that constant fact that you get rain showers coming through, it's always green um so wonderful lush sort of scenery um but the scenery around the edge of the island is absolutely spectacularly rugged um this is the island of pico named after Pico is not only the highest mountain in the Azores, it's actually the highest mountain in Portugal as well. So well worth uh, a bit of attention. And I don't make any apologies for including it time and time again in these pictures, because wherever you are on the island of Pico, you generally have a view of Pico. And it always seems to just attract the eye. And can you climb it? Yes, you can. You need a permit. You need to do as you're told. And can it snow up there? Yes, it can. But that just makes it all the more wonderful. But that's the only place it's going to snow in the entire Azores archipelago. There are nine islands there, and that's the only place it's going to snow in winter. If we go to the island of Fayal, the landscape you're looking at there literally erupted out of the ground, I think, in 1959, covered everything in ash, and to this day, hardly a, hardly a twig or a shrub or a flower will grow on it. Um, so you're looking at one of the youngest landscapes um, on the planet there. It caused a lot of upset to the people in the area. A lot of them emigrated to America and now are beginning to filter back into the area, you know, the, or their descendants even are coming back. Uh, but Fayal is wonderful. The centre of the island is a massive volcanic caldera with lakes in the bottom and when you're walking around the island there are lovely tracks and paths, open areas, forested areas, lovely sunny days when you get them in the winter and it's well worth looking around some of the island capitals as well because they themselves are just crammed full of heritage. Um, if I go across to the island of um, Flores, it's a smaller island, but believe it or not, despite its small size, it has a, a long distance trail of about three days that literally picks its way along the cliffs, visits places tucked away in the hills that hold little lakes in rugged little coons, and um, even offers you the chance to go down a horrendous path in search of a hot water spring. Always remember the Azores are geothermally active and occasionally will um, uh, sprout a volcano, much 
as the Canaries is doing at the moment. The smallest of the Azores is called Corvo. And again, it's a fascinating place, but of extremely limited extent. There's very little else to do apart from explore the town and the caldera. So don't book there for a week's holiday or you'll begin to regret it after two days. That's the the Atlantic Islands. Um, the, the odd one out is Madeira and Porto Santo, two little islands just about within view of each other. Um, it's well worth the effort to go to Madeira in winter because, again, they do get the sunshine. This is Funchal, deliberately built on the sunniest part of the island and now climbing well up to about a thousand metres above sea level. It's, it's crazy the way that place goes. Um, the scenery, the coastal scenery is stunning. The hills you can climb are really quite rugged but of course it's famous for those lavadas those little horizontal channels cut across the mountains where you have a little path alongside to follow those lavadas will take you to the most amazing little places they link villages they link farms they go from one rugged mountainside to another but if you go into the mountains beware because it's one of those islands where it's lovely and sunny in the morning and then the clouds roll in in the afternoon but again this is the scene in the highest mountains in the depths of winter. Snow is extremely rare in Madeira and warm sunny days are actually quite plentiful. A neighbouring island to Madeira is Porto Santo and this is January in Porto Santo with all the clover out and if you want to know where the best beach is in the entire Atlantic Ocean it's probably this one on Porto Santo. It's seven miles long and is absolutely stunning, but not visited by huge crowds. You know, there are no large resorts in the area. So um, that's the sort of uh, scene you would expect there in the depths of winter. If we move into the Mediterranean, it's quite interesting. Malta is so far south, it's almost in Africa. Look at it on a map, you know, look at the Mediterranean, find tiny little Malta, and it's actually a very long way south, you know. It's more or less off the coast of Africa rather than part of Europe. The scenery around the edge is absolutely stunning. It's almost always cliffs and rugged cliffs at that. There are wonderful bays to explore. There are heritage features such as defensive towns, towers and uh, castles, things like that. Lovely little beaches as well and all very, very easy to get around. So you will always be able to catch a bus everywhere in Malta, Gozo, but not Camino because that island is just a rock. So you get three islands for the price of one in a simple visit. Um, staying in the Mediterranean the further north you come the more you're likely to run into proper serious winter weather but Sardinia is actually quite good so long as you stay somewhere near the sea or in the middle range hills so this is the coastline of Ogliastra with its famous pinnacle absolutely stunning and if you go into the hills you find these wonderful shepherd's huts made of nothing more than stones and branches and most of the trails you would do at some point point will come across one of these little pinettos. You're not supposed to poke around inside them, just admire them from the outside, but it's wonderful to think that for centuries shepherds have lived in very simple places like that. The mountains are terrifyingly steep in places, so please pick a decent trail. And that's the whole point of having a guidebook is it'll tell you what you're going to expect and you can pick something within your abilities. Does it snow in Sardinia? Yes, it does on the highest mountains in the winter and it can be bitterly cold up there. But most of the mid-level and the coastline is absolutely perfect for a winter visit.
Another one in the Mediterranean that I've had experience of in winter is Mallorca. Now, again, if you're in the high mountains, it could snow. But if you pick your trails and choose your sunny days, you can be enjoying scenery like this in January, February, and not expect a lot of hassle with rain or storms or anything like that. There will be rain at some point if you spend as much as a week or two in winter in Mallorca, but it will be rain that passes. So choose your mountain routes with care, you know, because the mountains are exceptionally rugged. So if it's going to be a brilliant day, go for a mountain walk. And if it's going to be a lousy day, go for something maybe down by the coast and go from beach to beach or something like that. But the mountain routes, even in winter when the sun is shining, are absolutely stunning and are not likely to be that busy. Um, So, you know, it's worth considering the coastline is stunning and there are paths available in many of the scenic places around the coast. But again, the mountains, if you know somebody who's going up the mountains who already knows the way around, tag along with them because the Mallorcan mountaineers, they are experts in their own terrain. Visitors tend to be a bit overawed at terrain like that. You know, usually there might be just the one way up and the one way down. And if you make a mess of it, you you may not live to regret it. So travel with care. This is a warning that not all walks are to be done in winter. And there are plenty of other walks that will take you into fantastic scenery with a chance of a high degree of sunshine and will take you from village to village. And, you know, you can link trails together, make long distance routes out of them and have an absolute whale of a time. Um, So this is basically what you would expect in the mountains in Mallorca in winter. Occasionally it will snow in the mountains in winter and it's a whole different ball game. If you imagine you can't see where the rocks and the holes are when the snow is down, then you need to think twice about whether the the mountains of Mallorca are for you. So we're coming so far north in Europe now that you're beginning to need to take care in the winter. But I've got this one other destination. Which part of the UK has the most sunshine hours? And it's the Isles of Scilly. Um, These pictures are not taken in winter, but I did once make a winter visit. But this is the sort of scenery you might expect if it was a lovely sunny day in the winter low level but rugged and incredibly scenic and everywhere you walk is just rock and greenery and flowers and little places serving food and drink the thing about visiting in the winter is there are very very few other visitors there if you go in the summer it is absolutely full of people it actually fills to capacity it's like no one else can be accommodated but in the winter time, you would have a lot of these places to yourself and everything is small, compact, scenic, easy to get to, easy to get away from. Well worth thinking about. If you are given a good weather forecast for the southwest of England in the winter, I would say make your way to the House of Silly and you would not regret it at all. <laughs> That was great, but um, yeah, it's it's very grey and rainy and miserable in the northwest of the UK, where me and you are, Paddy. And yeah. I don't know how you're feeling after looking through all those pictures <laughs> of beautiful sunshine, but I'm beginning to regret that I haven't got a winter sunshine holiday booked. <laughs> <laughs> What is it about islands with you 
there's a, a serious theme to lots of your recommendations and they they are often islands. Why are they yeah. your favourite well, places? Well, I've been to some places in the middle of winter. Um, let me think of one just offhand. I've been to Nice in the middle of winter, south of France, and you it's like being in the tropics. You know, the sun is beating down. There's hardly anyone there. No one on the beaches, but the sun is beating down. But you try to walk northwards from Nice and you'll get about a day and a half and then it's alpine terrain with snow and ice on it. Um, so the, the walking you could do in a place like that would be very, very limited in the winter. Now, an island, especially if you're picking an island going south in the Mediterranean or one of those Atlantic islands off the coast of North Africa, gets much more dependable weather where you can actually get away with a greater variety of walks than you can see in most parts of mainland Europe. You know, if you go to somewhere flat in Europe in the winter, you can walk wherever you want, but it might be the Netherlands or something like that. You know, you're not going to get the big mountains. You're not going to get anything like that. Um, it will be physically possible to walk, but, um, you know, it, it won't be as, as scenically, you know, wonderful as a lot of other places. But the one thing I like about islands is they come in different sizes. But at the end of the day, every island is its own little self-contained world. And it's a world you can visit. If it's a small island, you can visit it for four days and come away with the feeling that you know it intimately. You've been everywhere, seen everything. If it's a large island, it might take you a month or two to explore. But then again, if you did go for a month or two and you explored it thoroughly, you still feel that you've looked everywhere, been everywhere, seen everything, and that you know it as well as anyone can know it. And that's what I love about islands. You know where the edge is. You know it's thus far and no further. You know, If you're in a country, a landlocked country in the middle of Europe, <laughs> you can just walk out of that country into a neighbouring country and you could spend the rest of your life trying to explore Europe and never even feel you've scratched the surface of it. So, yeah, that's the one thing about islands is you know when you're done with them. They are manageable. They're great fun. And all the options are usually laid out before you. You know, it's like you know that you can climb this walk around the coast, visit these places, and that's it. That island is now finished. And if you're in an archipelago like the Canaries or the Azores, there's another island just to the left or right or north or south. You know, you can just hop to the other ones and see what they're like. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, they all can be compared and contrasted with each other. No two islands are the same. They're all different. But yeah, I, I just love them. <laughs> So I was going to ask, where would be your place to go to if you had to spend an entire winter season in one destination? But it sounds like maybe you, you've already done that. I have. I've, I've spent so many winters in those places that I've just described. And then because it feels like, you know, the, the sun is shining, the sky is blue, it feels like springtime, even though it's winter. But then later on, those islands get too hot for me. You know, if I went in, in late spring, I'd be thinking this is like a furnace. I can't cope with the heat and the humidity, you know. So visiting those far-flung islands way to the south, the Azores and the Canaries and Madeira as well, visiting those in the winter is like being in spring. You've got flowers, you've got sunshine, an occasional shower. But then when their proper spring comes, it feels like summer to me and I'm happy to move up to the Mediterranean then for what you might call proper spring, you know, uh, February to March, March just about into April. After April, I'm finding the Mediterranean's getting too hot for me. So then I can 
can come to Britain for our spring. <laughs> and then I've done it a step further. I've gone up to Greenland and Iceland in the middle of the summer, and it feels like our spring. Um, so it's like an eternal springtime that goes from January to September. And, you know, if you move with the seasons, you can do that, you know, just enjoy the best that everyone has just by starting as far south as you can and working as far north as you can. And then all of a sudden you'll end up with like coming into October, November, December, where almost everybody's weather is a bit dreary, you know, and even some of those far flung islands after the main summer when it's been hot and humid or maybe hot and dry everything's starting to look a bit wilted and jaded you know and you're actually waiting for their winter to kick in you know a good lot of rainfall in December and January is absolutely fantastic because all the flowers pop up again everything goes green again but yeah it's interesting but it's very difficult for me to pin down a place where I would just want to go and stay in the middle of winter because I've done it so many times times and all those places are just so different and they're all enjoyable. And many of the places that you mentioned have got a season for holidays and for tourism and we're talking about going in probably the off season for each holidays and that kind of thing. So I mean there's probably a benefit there, the the flights are probably cheaper and that type of stuff but what about the facilities? Are are there still places to stay or are, are you having to camp when you go to these places? Well, you you can do almost anything you want. When I first went to places like the Canaries, it was almost always the case that you went as part of a package deal. You know, your flight, your accommodation, your food, your hotel was selected for you. But I made it my business to just go from little town to little town, village to village, especially the ones in the mountains, and find out is there anywhere that you can just turn up on the doorstep, knock on the door and stay there? And I was delighted to find that there were tiny little hotels with maybe four rooms. There were little hostels, which are like an even more basic hotel with just, you know, a bed, a pillow and the chance of getting a cup of coffee and, you know, a toasty sandwich or something for breakfast. And these places are available everywhere, but 99% of the tourists at the time I was doing that initially were staying in resorts as part of a package deal. And I was trying to do it independently. These days, because you can look up accommodation on booking.com, Airbnb, hotels.com, you look them up and you'll be presented with all the options that save you from doing a package deal. And you can actually pick where you want to stay in a place that's right for your budget rather than being told where to stay. But it was the same everywhere. You know, Madeira used to be the case of uh, you couldn't just rock up and make your own way around from accommodation to accommodation. It was fairly controlled. You know, they wanted you in a resort situation. But all that's changed. You know, you'll get Airbnbs all over Madeira. And it's the same anywhere you go now. You know, you you can pick and choose your own places. And if you want to camp, places like the Azores are full of little campsites. And a lot of them are free of charge. They're very basic. You get water, you get a toilet, you may not get a shower, but you'll get a little patch of grass. So you put your tent there and nobody even wants money off you. 
and then you move on to the next campsite. And then you get places like Gran Canaria, which is full of government-operated campsites for which you need to apply for a permit. Doing the paperwork in a foreign language to get a permit and abiding by the regulate is really hard work for someone who's not used to it. But there are places you can camp so long as you're willing to put in a bit of effort. And then if it comes to wild camping, yes, you can camp almost anywhere, but yes, it's also illegal. People do it all the time. You know, everywhere you go in these places I've described, you'll see someone with a rucksack, with a tent and a sleeping bag on it. And, you know, they're not staying on a regular campsite. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, anything goes, basically. The facilities are there year round in all these places and they tend to be a lot cheaper and easier to find in the winter. Okay, places may close down in the winter, but those ones that are open will let you know that they're open and they're available to be booked. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks. I hope that answers your question, Fiona. Uh, Fiona sent that one in. Um, Another question about how to get around, because somewhat famously, you don't take a car when you go to these places. So (laughs) how do you find the the public transport systems? Well, first, I have to find it. Um, You know, that's part of the research, if you like, is um, I don't use a car. I don't I won't hire a car. Um, I just want to get the bus up there. And if the bus goes past all the walking trails, I'll tell people use this bus and get off at the bus stop at the start of the walking trail. That means you don't have to come back to the same bus stop. You can go over the mountain down the other side, catch a bus on the other side, and it'll still bring you home. Um, so I like I like to give people those options. And if there are buses up and down these mountains all day long, then I'll tell people they're there. If there's only one bus up in the morning and one in the afternoon, I'll actually look for walks that will tie in with that bus. And fair enough, if you want to hire a car and just dispense with the bus, you can do that. Go up there. I'll tell you where the car park is. It's usually by the bus stop and um, you can do the same walk anyway. But yeah, I've made it my business to find out where the buses are, how often they operate and, you know, get a good grip of how dependable they are. Because you don't want to be relying on a bus service where the driver can't be bothered to get up in the morning. You know, these are all proper regulated buses and they don't mind tourists jumping on board, pay a few euros and you're part of the crowd, you know. But it's great that because you're you're traveling with local people. And I, I also find that fascinating, you know, because. If you're in a car, you're just sealed off from everybody around you. If you're on a bus and people are getting on and off and they generally know each other, you know, and if you can follow even a fraction of what they're talking about, it makes that destination so much more interesting. So, yeah, I love the buses. And I think every one of those places I've written about has a bus service. The Isles of Scilly doesn't, but you don't need one because they are so tiny. Um, But all the other islands basically have some sort of service. And it's because of the details. Details I've given in the guidebooks, it's easy to find out where the timetables are. Yeah. Thanks for that, Paddy. That was, as ever, a fantastic amount of information in, in a short amount of time. Uh, so thank you for that. Hey, good night. I hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast. I'd love to know what you think, or if there's anything you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Please email live at cicerone.co.uk or leave a review on your podcast platform. You can follow or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss new episodes, or you can sign up to our newsletter for all our latest news, events and guidebooks. Visit cicerone.co.uk for further details. We'll be back soon, but please come and join us on our social channels. We're on all the main ones as Cicerone Press, and we also have a Facebook group, Cicerone Connect, 
where you can meet and chat to other outdoor enthusiasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.